Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. Today we'll hear from several guests, including Bruce Merkin of the Marijuana Policy Project, Terry Nelson of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and we'll have a special segment of our regular reporter, Doug McVeigh, when he spoke at the Normal Conference in San Francisco. And for those of you who may not notice, I just wanted to make note of the fact that the drug war is crumbling in front of our eyes as we speak. Not only is President Vicente Fox and the Mexican Congress swaying back and forth looking at the word legalize, so too are notables, scientists, doctors, and politicians from around the planet taking another look at this 91-year-old policy of eternal drug war. The International Harm Reduction Conference is finishing up in Vancouver. Common Sense for Drug Policy is also putting on a counter-symposium to the DEA efforts up in Canada this coming week, and we'll be bringing you reports from that as well. Quick program note before we kick this off. Last week we featured a little segment, a minute, of the U.S. torture done against a suspect that the cops thought might have some drugs. They wound up arresting him for evading arrest. And I wanted you to know that we now have a full 39-minute segment of that two-hour torture available on our website, which is drugtruth.net. Each week, Doug McVeigh produces a report for us, The Drug War Facts using the government stats to sink their own ship. And he got a chance to speak at the normal conference, and I wanted to share that with you now. I'm here today to tell you the truth about truthiness. I have the honor of being the director of research for Common Sense for Drug Policy and the editor of Drug War Facts. In that capacity, I constantly review research and data on drug control policies in order to help reformers, media, the general public make sense of what's often a confusing debate. Now, it's confusing because drug warriors intentionally make it that way. Public confusion perpetuates the status quo. This administration, of course, uses that tactic quite a lot in more than just the drug war, though I'm going to stick with that aspect of it, which is probably why the American Dialect Society chose truthiness as its word of the year for 2005. For those of you who don't know, truthiness is defined as this the quality of stating concepts or facts one wishes or believes to be true rather than concepts or facts known to be true. And now I ask you, has there ever been a better word for describing the propaganda that props up prohibition? See, the drug war is built on a foundation of lies, from the contention that medical marijuana is a fraud to the notion that law enforcement works ad nauseum. It's our responsibility to call them out on this. And if I can do any help in terms of providing the information to let you do it, well, then my job is being done. Now, mind you, these aren't always outright lies. Facts in any debate are nuanced. Things are rarely simply black and white. One example of this, drug warriors frequently refer to the number of uh, the increasingly large numbers of marijuana users who are getting referred to drug treatment, and which is true. But if you look at the data, it reveals that the bulk of these are because of 
well, people are trying to avoid hassles with law enforcement. Basically, they're being ordered to because their alternative is going to jail. And you know, meanwhile, people who need help, people who actually want to have help with their problems, don't come forward. And why? Because they're afraid of admitting that they break the law. And, you know, if they could find affordable treatment in the first place. So you see, if we're concerned about addiction, then we have to legalize drugs. Oh, thank you. See, by peeling away the layers of distortion and wishful thinking which obscure the facts, we can finally reach the core of the debate, and by doing that, we will win. You see, at Common Sense, we believe that an informed public will inevitably, inevitably demand rational drug policies. We're really optimistic. But, you know, on the other hand, if we didn't have hope, if we didn't believe, then we couldn't do this. CSDB provides a number of resources to carry out this educational mission, many of them on the web. Our sites are constantly expanding as new items are added, new subjects are covered. They're really useful tools. Please do check them out. Um, our most popular is the eponymous website csdp.org. Through it, we provide current news and information on a lot of topics with links to source articles, other organizations, all that kind of stuff. We try to go past the headlines to find the whole story. I've, um, I've finally started providing an RSS feed, too, for those of you who are using newsreaders, so you can, it's a lot easier to keep up to date with things that are happening. Um, all that's on our website. We also run a public service advertising campaign. Our website has a full set of those ads in the last seven years, and there are also copies of those ads at the registration desk. Um, now, these PSAs run in selected major opinion and political commentary periodicals, including Reason, which is not why I'm on this panel today. And the check's in the mail. Um, our flagship website, of course, is drugwarfacts.org. Drug War Facts is an archive of research and data on drug control policies, and... And, and well, he said it, but uh, modestly speaking, it is an essential resource for anyone who's interested in drug control policy or in drugs. The new print edition is going to be done in a few weeks. I'm sorry that it's not here. Uh, it's at the printers. I have the final approval, which is going out. It'll be printed soon. Get in touch with us. Um, on the other hand, use the web version. It's available in HTML. It's in PDF. It's in plain text. It's updated regularly, and it's free. And, and if, for those of you browsing the web on your PDAs, we're going to have a, one uh, a version in wireless markup language. Now, one of our lesser-known sites is Drug War Distortions, um, drugwardistortions.org. And this is actually the site I enjoy the most. Uh, in Drug War Distortions, what we do is we uh, deconstruct, debunk, or at least explain some of these, well, some of these nuanced arguments, including questions about drug use estimates and the gateway theory and, and cannabis and drug treatment. Um, and I recently added a section to Drug War Distortions, um, which deals with the assertion that marijuana use contributes to violent behavior. You've, you heard that right. ONDCP says that, quote, research shows that kids who use marijuana weekly are nearly four times more likely than non-users to report they engage in violent behavior, end quote. And to back up their assertion, the Czar's office quotes two studies. The first, from the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, actually does show that young people who admit on federal surveys that they are frequent marijuana users also admit to engaging in other problem behaviors. The researcher, at least, was honest enough to admit that there's no evidence of causality in any direction. ONDCP kind of left that part out. Mm -hmm. 
The second study was published in the Journal of Addictive Diseases, and that study did find some correlation between admitted marijuana use and some violent behaviors. Um, the researchers, however, noted the people studied, all of whom were drug users from the inner city who were African Americans of lower socioeconomic status. Um, that these people were not representative of the population as a whole, weren't even representative of a typical inner city, lower, um, lower SES, uh, African American community. Um, they also noted that the marijuana use could have been an attempt to, you know, control violent tendencies. That is, it was probably self-medication. But again, that doesn't fit into ONDCP's worldview. And so truthiness, once again, rears its ugly head. Now, with a little bit of research, we find the real truth. There are a lot of resources out there. The important things are to question, to learn, and to respond. Never, ever accept arguments at face value. Not even mine. If you'd like to hear more from the Normal Conference, I advise you to go to their website, which is norml.org. Next up, from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, with 32 years' experience as a border and customs agent, this is Terry Nelson. I want to comment on some federal policy I've been researching. Uh, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, 90% uh, of the cocaine entering the United States originates or passes through Colombia. Over the last decade, cocaine production in Colombia has increased dramatically. In spite of aerial eradication efforts, Colombian cultivation of coca has more than tripled since 1992. The data for calendar 2000 indicates that both the number of hectares of coca under cultivation and the amount of cocaine produced from these crops continues to rise. Colombian coca cultivation rose 11% to 136,200 hectares, that's uh, 336,000 acres in America in 2000. Uh, there was a corresponding 11% increase in potential cocaine production to 500 metric tons. And continued expansion of drug production in Colombia is likely to result in more drugs being shipped to the United States. As a matter of fact, the Center for Narcotic Control in 2001 reported 815 metric tons. And uh, <clears throat> there was a press conference in D.C. the other day, a foreign press center briefing, given by Ambassador Annie Patterson, the Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. And she responded to a question from a Colombian newspaper. His question was, uh, one is, you have mentioned the positive results of the war against narco-trafficking in Colombia, our country. But where are we lacking in efforts in order to finish this once and for all? And is the United States also not helping enough? Or what do you think is lacking there in order to get rid of the problem? And his second question, uh, and a little more personal, he says, which is like, what is your uh, special frustration in the work you've done in fighting this business that it doesn't seem to end? Ambassador Patterson responded, I'll take the first one first. Certainly, I think we'd like to see, I think we underestimated the size of the coca crop. I think there was an error we made from the very beginning, and we underestimated the amount of coca cultivation always in places like Waiveri and Narino. So that means we're going to be spraying for longer than we anticipated, and it means we're going to need more resources for a longer period of time. So 30 years isn't enough. They need more time. What is the frustration? Sure, it's a frustration. But as a predecessor of mine put it once, there's no such thing as a war on drugs. There's no victory. This is the Ambassador Peterson, Patterson saying this. There's no such thing as a war on drugs. There's no victory. It's just sort of like fighting a chronic disease. And I was telling somebody today we're always going to be in a place like Bolivia because Bolivians don't have resources to fight this on their own. And this is still her response. They're always going to need our support for the counter-narcotics unit. 
and I suspect there will always be some counter narcotics, uh, excuse me, some narcotics in Colombia. The purpose is just to roll back the traffickers so they don't control the major urban areas and they go back to being a nuisance in the countryside as they were for so many years. So it's not frustration, it's just a fact of life. There's never a clear-cut victory on this. It's just a question of containing where it breaks out. Almost staggering that they, they know we can't win, but they keep fighting it. Uh, with such information from the ONDCP and, and Annie Patterson, the Secretary of State for National Narcotics, and all saying that we cannot and are not winning, why do we continue to follow this fellow policy? Uh, also, Richard Haas of the Brookings Institute, he said, statistics demonstrate that we are increasing the amount of drugs destroyed and intercepted but are making little, if any, dent in the amount of drugs in the United States are more important or consumed. Foreign policy sees drugs as essentially a problem of supply. But the reality is that there are more a problem of domestic demand. No amount of foreign policy tools makes much of an impact on demand. Resources would be better devoted more to domestic programs for reducing demand and providing treatment. With all these distinguished dignitaries saying this, is that uh, we're, we're in good company because LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, calls for the abolishment of drugs and regulation and control and taxation by the state. So uh, this is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off. Terry, I want to add on to our discussion for the program. I, I appreciate these reports you give us each week, but I, I understand you're now headed to Canada as part of a symposium uh, in contrast to one being held by the DEA. Please tell us about that forthcoming symposium. Well, it's going to be an international drug enforcement counter symposium. There will be dignitaries from out throughout the United States and the world up there to speak about and so toward the counter the DEA uh, international symposium that they're holding there in Montreal. And the following day, the team, uh, eight or ten dignitaries, uh, I'm not considering myself one of those, will be going on to Ottawa for a major press conference up there. So uh, it's just to get the information out in, into Canada and kind of a, a, a balance of uh, what the government will be putting out. And, and I think it's uh, imperative that we note that the DEA sessions will be closed to the public, yet you're inviting the DEA to attend yours. Well, we've invited the DEA and the RACMP. Uh, everyone's invited to attend ours. We, we appreciate and and, uh, and seek out open discussion from all sides. Well, with that, I, I once again want to thank you, Terry, and we'll look forward to your reports from Canada. Thank you, Dean. It's been a pleasure. It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. A stirring in the loins, women feel genital warmth and a desire to have sex. Men feel an enhanced libido. They feel younger, stronger, and more energetic. Time's up. The answer, according to Britain's Guardian newspaper, PT-141. Is this the drug that will save the rhino population? And now another black perspective on the drug war. What is it like to be poor and black in America? When you're poor and black, the lure of easy money for selling drugs is a constant temptation. The golden bait dazzles, even though the cruel barbed hook is plain to see. Some people sell drugs and get rich. Some people sell drugs and go to prison. Some people do very little work and get lots of money. Some people work like dogs to earn enough to just barely get by. And anyone can try to get rich selling drugs. Since the 1980s, there have been savage cutbacks in job programs, social service programs, and industrial employment. But the drug business is flourishing, and some people get rich selling drugs. 
Some people pay banks 12% for borrowing money, and some people pay pawn shops 350% and more. Some people go to good schools to be able to pursue their limitless prospects. Some people go to crumbling schools where they learn they never had much of a chance anyway. Some people sell drugs, and some of them get rich. Some states have come to realize that long jail sentences for poor, small-time, desperate black offenders wastes billions of dollars and creates little, if any, social benefit. Some states rely on the money from the illicit drug trade to pad their treasuries. Some politicians get votes by putting black bodies behind bars, and some people sell drugs and get rich. And some go to prison. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. I am Bruce Merkin, and I am Communications Director with the Marijuana Policy Project. Bruce, it seems that uh, every week, if not every day, there's new news on the international front about this ongoing drug war. The most recent volley, I think, came from Mexico and their thoughts about legalizing drugs for personal use. Your thoughts on that, sir? Well, you're right. The uh, The Mexican uh, Senate uh, just passed a law that had already passed the lower house of, of their Congress uh, that would... Uh, permit possession of small amounts of marijuana and a number of other drugs uh, for personal consumption. It wouldn't allow uh, sales or possession of large amounts, etc. The Mexican government clearly, uh, like governments all around the world, uh, is beginning to see uh, that prohibition uh, often causes problems rather than preventing them, and they're looking for ways to, to write new laws that will do a better job, and this is a, a worthy attempt. We certainly uh, agree that, uh, certainly on the subject of marijuana, that it just makes no sense at all to, to put responsible users of marijuana in jail and subject them to arrest and, and all of the legal process uh, for simply having marijuana for personal use. What they haven't done is dealt with the fundamental problem created by prohibition, which is that it gives criminals and gangs a monopoly on production and sales and distribution and makes it completely impossible to have any sort of sensible regulation, licensing, or control of, of the people who are selling marijuana. And that is that is something that we advocate very strongly. Of course, we have a marijuana regulation initiative on the ballot in Nevada. Uh, but it is, despite the imperfections, I think it's very encouraging uh, that a country uh, as close to us as Mexico and certainly subject to U.S. government pressure is starting to think independently. I, I find it uh, ironic, and if not for the seriousness of the circumstance, uh, hilarious that uh, none of these politicians, or so few of these politicians, are daring to look at the economic picture that uh, if they want to destroy the gangs and the cartels, legalization is the only way that you can achieve success. Well, indeed, there's a reason uh, that these gangs and cartels don't trade in coffee beans or cocoa or chocolate or, or things like that. Those are legal and regulated, and there's no huge profits to be made in an illicit market. You know, what's interesting is John Walters, our drug czar, was in Denver just uh, this past weekend, 
and he was talking about how many billions of dollars in the, in the marijuana trade go to primarily Mexican gangs. Well, I got news for you. That's always going to be the case until we tax and regulate marijuana. There is a market. About 15 million Americans use marijuana at least monthly, according to government surveys. Somebody is going to supply that market. So the choice is, is it going to be licensed, reputable business people? Or is it going to be criminal gangs as it is now? Seems like an easy choice to me. Bruce, I know that the, the government talks about the hazards of smoke marijuana, but there is an alternative. There is a, a much better solution, the vaporizer. Please tell us what the Marijuana Policy Project thinks of the vaporizer. Well, you know, our our mission statement is to minimize the harm associated with marijuana. And clearly, one of the harms that is real is, is bronchitis and, and other conditions caused by the irritants in smoke. And the technological solution to this has been around for actually a number of years, devices called vaporizers. And a new study uh, of one such model, a vaporizer called the Volcano, uh, was just published in the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences. They tested it both with natural marijuana and with uh, liquid THC dissolved in alcohol. And they came to the conclusion that it is indeed a safe and effective delivery system. And what's, what's interesting is that the language of this study is almost word for word what the Institute of Medicine in 1999 said is needed for safe use of medical marijuana. So the only big obstacle that the Institute of Medicine saw is now solved. And, you know, if our government actually cared about people's health, they would be announcing this and promoting it rather than ignoring it and pretending it's not happening? It, it, it seems that uh, with every pronouncement of the government designed to promulgate, to continue this drug war, they show the failings, uh, the lack of science. Well, indeed, they, they use anything that they can grab onto as an excuse. And people know, in general, that smoke is not good for your lungs. And that is, in general, true. Uh, although in the case of marijuana, there's no evidence at all that it causes higher rates of lung cancer, unlike tobacco. But clearly, there is a lot of toxic junk produced when you burn any plant material. That's not great for your lungs. But rather than using that to say, oh, marijuana is bad, why not be honest with people and say, you know, there are other ways to use it. And in fact, if you're doing it in moderation, the amount of smoke you take in is probably not going to hurt you seriously anyway. We're old-fashioned about this. We think that people will mostly be relatively smart if you just tell them the truth. I think oftentimes the fact that edibles are available and that help certain maladies and that can be made directly from marijuana is never really pointed out. No, they. Uh, I think there's been a tactical decision that... that people in our government have made to emphasize smoking because it connects it in people's minds with tobacco and something that they know that is that people generally know is unhealthy. Um, so what we're talking again is politics instead of facts. Um, let's just give people honest information. If you're if you're somebody uh, a medical marijuana patient who needs to be using marijuana frequently uh, you're probably, no, I'll say you're definitely better off using a vaporizer and not smoking. 
um, rather than saying, ah, smoke is bad, marijuana is poison, let's just tell people the truth and trust them to make the decision that's best for them. If you would like to make a more informed decision, I urge you to visit the website of the Marijuana Policy Project, mpp.org. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. Under George W. Bush, the U.S. has cornered the world's heroin industry in the Texas-sized poppy patch known as Afghanistan. Worldwide, nine of every ten heroin-related overdoses, needle-acquired infections, and imprisonments are associated with the illegal harvest upon which the U.S.-Afghan policy depends. According to U.N. estimates, at the time of the U.S. invasion in 2001, Afghanistan accounted for 10% of world heroin supply. Under subsequent U.S. occupation, it has risen to the current 90% market monopoly. The U.N. reports that so far in 2006, opium cultivation has increased in 13 Afghan provinces, is stable in 16, and has decreased in only three. There are numerous reports this week that the Afghan heroin trade is funding the Taliban insurgency and that the deteriorating security situation in southern Afghanistan is inversely proportional to the rise in opium cultivation. Meanwhile, more than 30 Americans have died since mid-April, 15 in Philadelphia alone, as a result of consuming heroin laced with the painkiller fentanyl. Hundreds more have been hospitalized, according to the DEA. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. Okay, as we're closing out, I notice we do have time to include the regular report from Mr. Doug McVeigh, the Drug War Facts. Someone send John Walters a sympathy card. He's having a tough week. First, he's getting freshly roasted by a Republican senator from Iowa, Charles Grassley. Senator Grassley sounds like he just climbed down off a tractor, which tends to put opponents off their guard. In reality, he's very sharp, very intelligent, and very tough. Senator Grassley can also add. As a result, he doesn't believe the drug czar's pronouncements of success regarding cocaine eradication in Plan Columbia. In a letter to Walters, Senator Grassley wrote, quote, The numbers being released out of the Office of National Drug Control Policy just don't add up, and I hope ONDCP takes the opportunity to respond to my letter in a forthright and transparent manner, end quote. Senator Grassley happens to be head of the Senate Caucus on International Narcotics Control, and as the L.A. Times reported, he suspects that ONDCP's figures are being manipulated in order to, quote, provide a rosier but not necessarily more accurate picture of the current situation, end quote. And then there's Mexico. The Mexican legislature last week approved a measure, first introduced in 2004 by Mexican President Vicente Fox, to decriminalize small personal use amounts of some illegal drugs. Many U.S. drug warriors threw hissy fits over this common-sense approach to law enforcement. In reality, small-scale possession arrests only help law enforcement generate a body count. They don't lead to arrests of dealers or those higher up, and they don't lead to breaks in other criminal cases. They're merely a time-wasting distraction. The Mexican government should have been applauded. Instead, they're bowing to U.S. pressure. Rather than signing it, President Fox has sent the bill, his own legislation, back to the Mexican legislature for them to reconsider it. At least our Walters can still intimidate some politicians, just not the Americans. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org.
Okay, we're about out of time. I want to let you know that next week we're going to hear from uh, multiple politicians who are running for or are seeking re-election as candidates and who also believe in drug reform. Now, those we've already verified will be with us include Kevin Zeese, who's running for U.S. Senate in the state of Massachusetts, Loretta Nall, who's a gubernatorial candidate in Alabama, and Cliff Thornton, who's running for governor in the state of Connecticut. We just added another affiliate to the Drug Truth Network, uh, Eugene Cannabis TV in Eugene, Oregon. Now, insofar as the $100 we offered to the person who sent in the best uh, phrase or word for the drug war, well, we only had one entry, and he wanted to use at least one of the seven deadly words. So if you'd like to win that $100, I'm keeping it open for another week or two. Send your uh, suggestion to dean at drugtruth.net. You can access hundreds of our programs there. I also want to make note that this week I was made, I was approved for the Speaker's Bureau of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, LEAP.cc. Bet you didn't know I used to be a cop. And as always, my friend, I remind you that because of prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. So I urge you to please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Tap dancing on the edge of cannabis. <laughs>